what's up everybody and welcome to Found Flicks. On today's Inning Explained, we're looking at a dark song. Following a woman who has rented a house in the middle of nowhere, she teams up with a downtrodden occultist to help her contact her deceased son via a dangerous ritual. I really appreciate this movie, especially for how much it accomplishes with not much. It's what you call a two-hander, meaning it's basically just two characters the entire movie, yet it still manages to create something impressively complex and interesting, as well as having some nice traditional scares in there as well. I could see viewers considering this a bit slow, but the deliberate pace really lends to a feeling of dread that permeates every frame and increases exponentially as things get deeper into the darkness. It ends up being a quite high-minded experience, touching on a wide range of religious and philosophical thoughts. It's actually very in-depth, so bear with me and we'll put the whole thing together in the end. Let's check out a dark song, breaking down the story, including the complicated ritual at play, Sophia's important character journey, the many religious and philosophical references here, as well as explaining the ending and what it means. It's a lot. Establishing the important religious aspect to the story right at the opening, we begin with a Bible quote. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all ways. Well, thanks for the angels. Out in an extremely rural area of Ireland, a tiny blue speck of a car dots the landscape. The driver, Sophia, appears to be interested in buying a house out here, and she needs it immediately. There are apparently some odd necessities, like asking which way a room faces, west she's told. The guy almost tries to talk her out of taking it, as she has to pay for an entire year up front. Sophia doesn't bat an eye, handing over a fat wad of cash for his help with the paperwork and to maintain privacy. Seems she has some kind of unseemly plans waiting to unfold here. That comes more into focus when she meets Michael Solomon. Woo, geez, his entire name is a biblical reference. Not much is revealed, her only interested in if he can do this, and wants to know if he's going to look at the house. Besides, that is what he agreed to and they take their leave. There are already strange questions brought up, Solomon wanting to know if she's been purifying herself. She has done as instructed to a T. No alcohol for 22 weeks, no sex of any kind, and only eating from dawn to dusk for the past 27 days. Then there's the question of her faith, Protestant or Catholic? Her groaning, she's Catholic. As for what they're up to here, it's something called the Rite of Abramelin. This is a real rite, or at very least is pulled from real history, from all the way back in the 15th century. Abraham was a powerful Egyptian Egyptian mage who taught a system of magic to others. This system of magic later regained popularity with more modern occultists after a new translation, in particular with the famous Aleister Crowley, who updated the system of magic from Jewish holy anointing oils as described in Exodus. <laughs> Already the religious stuff is coming fast and thick here. Solomon warns her just how serious this rite is. He's done it three times prior and was only successful once, but chalks it up to inexperience as well as needing the right person to complete the ritual. He importantly asks why she wants to do it in the first place, her only saying that it's for love. I love someone and they don't love me anymore. She comes to him outside rolling a cigarette and wants to know if he's going to do it. He flatly refuses, excusing that the house isn't right. She can't understand, saying that she found everything that he asked for. It seems the real problem is her motivation, calling her a stupid posh girl. Using this procedure to force love is like getting TTA, an Italian Renaissance painter, to decorate a cake. He continues to be aggravated, feeling that he's wasted his time here and doesn't budge when she ups the offer to 80,000 quid. It's only now that she finally spills the truth. It isn't for love, but actually that she lost her son. He was taken and says that it was her fault. She wants to speak with him and just has to hear his voice one more time. That's a much meatier motivation for Solomon, but he wants to know why she lied in the first place. She defends she thought he would think it was too much, but he lays out it's very important to tell the truth, especially as they get deeper into this. He again iterates how dangerous it is. They are dealing with 
real angels and real demons here. Yet she is steadfast in her drive to go forward. She wants this more than anything. Now he's convinced to follow through here after all. He lists specific things that she'll have to go through, asking once more if she's ready for this. She's confident she is, saying she's read the Kabbalah. And he chuckles at her ignorance. You think this is the tree of Sephiroth, but it's not. It's actually Gnosticism, which is a religious movement that originated pre-Christianity. It was a collection of ideas as well as religious ones that came together in the first century among Jewish and early Christian sects. They emphasized personal spiritual knowledge above the orthodox teachings and authority of religious institutions. So unlike more modern Christianity, this emphasizes the person and their own spiritual learning above anything else. As we'll see, this is pretty much on the money for the right. They get a list together of all the supplies they'll need, including several months worth of food, as once they get started, there is no leaving the house. So far, we have some insight to Sophia's situation, but Solomon starts revealing that he has some of his own issues. Most destructively, he abuses alcohol. He's currently detoxing from drinking for several months, believing that it puts him in a higher state of mind. He shakes it off as no big deal, but then quickly gets weak in the knees. She rushes to his aid, and he angrily shoves her away and storms off. Alone in his room, he pulls out a hefty bottle of booze, but denies its allure and stuffs it into a drawer. Meanwhile, she too is digging through her own belongings, finding a folded photo of her and her boy. She reaches around further and pulls out what must be a little goblin toy of his. She stares over to the door and blocks it with a chair. Mm, better safe than sorry, I guess. And who knows if she can really trust this guy. He does some final preparations at the house while she stocks up at the store. She stops when hearing a child crying nearby, then hearing a muffled gravelly voice saying to stay still. She walks around the cars and sees someone in a hoodie leaning over a fussy child. We don't see her face, but there is a shock of white hair peeking out from under her hood. She is startled by someone grabbing her shoulder, the lady huffing, Sophia, thank God. We learn that it's her sister who has been worried about Sophia's well-being. Sophia insists that she's better now, thinking it was not doing anything that made her ill. Now she's doing something. Victoria must be mildly aware of what she's attempting, asking if she believes in God and if what she's doing is godly. Sophia isn't frightened by involving the forces of darkness, asking what she would do if it was her kid. She defends that she would definitely not do this and offers to look after her troubled sister. Sophia is dubious at the prospect of her younger sis taking care of her and points out the main difference in their families. Victoria has two healthy kids and she has none. Getting emotional, she wants to know where God and his goodness is and all that. She won't be swayed and stays resolute in her choice to do this despite her sister's concern or whether it's right or wrong. It might not be immediately clear just yet, but based on this, we can sense that Sophia was perhaps once a believer in God, that is until losing her son, and as a result, she turned her back on him as well as Christianity as a whole. They tend to the initial prep, including Solomon cutting a branch out in the woods and then tossing it into a room. As she rolls up the rugs in what will be their main ritual area and sweeps up the place, getting things nice and clean, or at least a little cleaner, I suppose. Camping out with a fire as there's no heat in the house, Solomon casually tests her truth-telling once more. They chat back and forth in various foreign languages, and when it comes to German, she stumbles a bit, and he puts her on the spot. Does she truly speak the language? And she maintains that she does. Yet, he gets cut on the hand when she says so. Establishing the potential of repercussions going on here, he has to pay for her lie in a sense. She backtracks that she can make herself understood, but according to him, a half-truth is still a lie. He gravely states that everything has consequences here. This has to be pure, not just in intention, but in drive along the way as well. He clarifies the problem is not about her being unable to speak German. He can help her with that, but she has to be honest. He suggests to take a final walk in the morning, as again, it will be months before they can step foot outside. She does so, setting out into the picturesque plains, pausing for a moment to take
drink in the gravity of what she's doing here. She then sees something unsettling at her feet, a rotting dead dog covered in maggots. Hmm, probably not a good omen considering. They then reach the point of no return for real, as Solomon lays out a salt perimeter around the house to create a supernatural seal. He leaves one little spot, giving her a final chance to back out, but she's unwavering and he completes the circle. Things kick off in the morning in an ultra fun manner, Solomon tossing a bucket of water in Sophia's face. Marnin' he treats her like a drill sergeant, shrieking to know what she's still doing in bed, and orders her to get up. She breathlessly apologizes, but he doesn't want to hear it, growling for her to meet him downstairs. He then details the increased complicated and difficult steps to complete the rite, they use so-called magic squares, which are made up of words and numbers together to make a whole idea, the intention to change a state regarding reality. She tries to complain, reminding him who's paying his wages here, but he stays agitated, spitting for her to not argue back, and this is not about the money. He accuses her of wanting to back out, well, too late for that anyway, but she lays it out that she just really wants this to work. He puts her down further, asking if this could possibly work with her in the lead, and she has has to admit she can't do this without him. But he definitely takes advantage of that unbalanced power relationship established. That is for dead gum, sure. He hands over a random mushroom for her to eat, and when expressing hesitation, he berates her once more for questioning him. She dutifully chomps it down, wondering what it will do. Solomon informs her, now that she has been cleansed ritually, the next step is to be cleansed physically. Worried she wants to know if it's going to be horrible, and he assures her it will be. Oh boy. Physically pure seems to indicate having to vomit all your guts out, seeing Sophia hurling over the toilet. She lies in bed staring at her son's toy and she flashes to what looks like a distorted dream out on the beach. The red hooded lady from the parking lot is there along with her son. Amongst the flashes is one of an older lady now seeing her face and she's holding the boy's hand. Now the complex ride truly begins and he explains each step that she must go through. It's a lot! Rewatching this part I was like dang 20 minutes of the movie is just him explaining all the details of this thing which is quite impressive really and does make it seem a lot Lot more fleshed out or potentially more real than the average movie ritual. In a basic sense, there are multiple circles drawn on the floor, each corresponding to the five realms of reality. Each must be completed one by one with increasing intensity, the intention being each time she is brought closer to that veil between worlds, as well as getting closer to evoking her guardian angel, and it will hopefully appear in the unnamed middle circle in the room. As for the angel, with each circle complete, it will grow stronger and more powerful. Its world will become merged with other worlds, not just our own. It could potentially show up at any of the stages, but most likely will be in one of the final ones. There's symbols with other purposes on her journey, a triangle that represents the Holy Trinity. Here she will gain focus to stop her going mad. Another room is the opposite, it seems, the square representing the number four, itself a square of two, the perfect number. This room relates to her urges and baseness, as well as where she will gain her steel, and also represents decay and death. Mmm, fun! He commands her to break the branch, and then helps teach her the many important magic squares that she will need along the way. She already displays some knowledge here, and he is impressed, even giving a nugget of encouragement before calling out her sloppy writing. Well, thanks for being nice for about a second there. He then gets her to shave all the hair off his back, as you do. Gotta be pure! Flipping through a journal, there's a swirly skull-looking guy on one page, and conversely a lady with big-ass swords on the other, which must symbolize the dual sides of power they are potentially evoking. Something good! 
good or evil, he places a rock out and asks her to concentrate on its mass, its coolness and stillness. The first step in the ride is to unshackle the house from our world, which will take two days, reiterating that they cannot leave the bigger circle. He tells her she must sit here and focus on the rock for three days with no break or even food. She's supposed to allow the rock to swallow any of her inevitable pain and discomfort. After the three days, she will get some food, but then she has to do the same thing in the other rooms, which is already shaping up to be a real test of will and determination. She gets right to it, Sophia chanting for all of her transgressions to be washed and to make her chaste and pure. Let her light be here now, guiding me and protecting me. As she continues, a door creaks open, accompanied by a thud upstairs, a very subtle sign that the right could be starting to work. In her room, she finds the goblin toy knocked over, and then hears a dog barking somewhere. I mean, they are in the middle of nowhere. Solomon, too, has picked up on the dog's odd bark. They're miles away from anywhere. She wants to know when they're going to start seeing some real effects, and a blackbird smashes right into the window. With this, he declares, it's already begun. It was a blackbird, as he points out. She can't tell through the window, but he is confident in what he saw. The rite is truly only beginning, as each circle will take weeks to master, but importantly, the rituals are really about her, shifting her consciousness and becoming one with the ceremony. She soon starts feeling the real impact of what they're doing, especially with them splashing water on her all the time. She collapses to the floor, convulsing. She cries that she needs sleep, and he lets her down, not yet, getting her back to her praying. The dog starts barking again, now joined by a bird tweeting. We come into the middle of a conversation regarding another part of the ritual about forgiveness, but she growls that she doesn't do forgiveness, asking him to work around it. He claims that he can, but it will make life hard, her only repeating back, she doesn't do forgiveness. So he drains some of his blood into a glass and orders her to drink it. She doesn't want to, but he reminds her this was really her choice. They need a blood sacrifice. He gets aggressive and she chokes it down, him making sure she's swallowed it all. Just as she finishes, we jump back to moments ago, telling her again to drink it down. She's confused, but does so anyway, establishing once more just how determined she is to reach her son, even something as horrifying to her as drinking blood, and then making her relive it moments later, she still follows through no matter what. This is even further established when she returns to that picture, and she tears her boy out, and crumples up her own side. This symbolizes that not even Sophia matters to herself, her son is the only priority. She'll put herself through anything to get to the boy. The pair discuss the metaphysical concepts behind what they're doing, as it isn't strictly owing to one religion or philosophy, it's kind of a melting pot of many different concepts. He classifies it as ontological, the branch of philosophy that studies concepts such as existence, being, becoming, and reality. Again, considering the idea of what oneself is able to do in a position at the top of the spiritual food chain, so to speak, she asks what exactly he's seen in his previous work. And he divulges he's seen everything, gods, demons, the dead, and the damned. She inquires if any of those things scared him. They all did, he says. His intention isn't about harnessing the power of these otherworldly things, but really the power of knowledge itself, and seeing the architecture and levers of these other worlds and how they work. Many humans wonder if there is something beyond the veil of our reality, and Solomon has seen things that prove there is to him. There's power in that knowledge in and of itself. The pair start to tap through to the other worlds, Sophia hearing faint scrapes and creaks through the floor. Solomon knows this means they've been noticed by these other beings, though they don't know who they are yet. She has a hopeful thought that it could be her boy, and a thud comes right at her ear. He quickly marks a spot, and they have to reseal their circles. She returns to the floor, hopeful for another supernatural punch from what she believes is her son's spirit. Sophia opens up a little bit, recounting a recurring dream that she has, which sounds suspiciously similar to her encounter in the grocery store parking lot, combined 
combined with those strange beach visions we were seeing. She describes being on the beach by herself and then walks past the bodies of all of her loved ones on the way to a village. She turns the corner to an old woman holding Jack, her son's hand, but she cannot see his face. Just as she turns around, she wakes up. She's of course obsessed with her boy's death, that's the entire driving factor here, and it stands to reason that she would dream often of this. But we come to understand that this dream might actually prove her ability to complete the rite. Solomon deems this dream as being her mind working on things, but even dreams, he says, are part of that grand architecture between worlds that he mentioned. Dreams, deja vu, and broken time all fit under the same umbrella. Us lowly humans seeing briefly beyond the world that we know and understand. For Solomon, his recurring dream is much simpler, and without too much symbolism, he owns a moped, he chuckles. That's it. They both think it's a real crack up, and we're once more seeing just a bit of camaraderie form between them. While doing laundry, she's presented with more signs of a presence. The vibrations of the machine draw her attention, spotting the goblin toy there. It falls off the side, and she rushes to retrieve it, even pushing back the appliances, but it appears to have vanished into thin air. She then lies out in the triangle, surrounded by candles, and he marks her in symbols, reminiscent of that drawing we saw. She undoes her bra so he can get her hold back, and this very light amount of sexuality appears to have a profound impact on Solomon. Afterwards, he's seen Great Escape style, absentmindedly tossing a ball against the wall, but it's obvious that he's attracted to Sophia in some way. As we then cut into the middle of another conversation, Solomon stressing the importance of what he's asking in order to complete the ritual. You're not gonna back out, right? She, of course, has no interest in backing down, asking if they need to do it in the other room. He tells her to gussy herself up with a fresh shirt and some makeup, her confused by what he's asking. Him shrugging, he's only a man. She re-enters all freshened up, and he's impressed by the sight. Still assuming, hopefully, this isn't part of the ritual. She's all, uh, don't you need your books and stuff? He turns more or less abusive again, screaming, does she know how to do this? She squeaks out, sorry, and he corrects, sorry, Mr. Solomon, which she recites back on cue. Taking things into a much more dominant, submissive relationship here, he tells her to remove her clothes and pose as he puts a hand down his pants, and yep, he quickly shoots his shot at the side of her body, and sighs for her to put her clothes back on. Even Sophia knows what happened was definitely not any kind of sex magic, and he admits that there is no sex magic in this ritual. It's just that he's gotta be pure. Um, gross. She calls him a piece of shit, and he throws back in her face what he's been doing for her. There's a lot to unpack from this scene, because the question becomes, if this wasn't for the right, as she's been led to believe about everything up to now, then what was the purpose? The reality, too, is we don't know that much about Solomon, and the clear intention is that he was having lustful feelings towards Sophia. His bungled way of dealing with this was to confront it head-on, but also not to take advantage of her in a more deliberate way. Conversely, this proves to Sophia that Solomon has his own real personal issues and problems that he's bringing to the table despite his constant assurance that he's doing what she wants. We don't even know if we can really trust this guy. He could just be a total weirdo, and the little hints that we've seen of the supernatural could be easily explained away. And now a moment from today's sponsor, ExpressVPN. If you're anything like me, there is definitely some worry about privacy on the internet nowadays. Perhaps you're searching for something you don't necessarily want everyone to know about. For me, that's usually sailing the high seas to download movies, which I do frequently, so I definitely want to make sure to be as safe as possible. Using something like incognito mode won't truly provide privacy. That's why you need ExpressVPN. I genuinely used this product well before this ad, and I love it because it works. That's why even when I'm at home, I never go online without using ExpressVPN. It's an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure server so your ISP cannot see the sites you visit. It also keeps your information secure by encrypting 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption possible. And it's incredibly easy to use. It just runs in the background seamlessly. One tap of a button and you're good to go. You can download it for any platform you surf on from desktops to phones and even your smart 
TV. Protect your online activity today and surf safely with ExpressVPN. Visit my exclusive link, expressvpn.com ending, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com ending. Go to expressvpn.com ending to learn more. The prior situation leads to some animosity between the two. Sophia tainting his soup with some of her whiz, telling him to serve himself. She does follow through with more prayers, but now is starting to waver a bit on her faith in the process. He reminds her of how things work. It usually takes until the second or third time to really get things cooking. She puts her foot down. She's not doing it again and is ready to leave the house entirely. He pleads to not break the barrier or they'll wind up stuck here forever. She's very disappointed as to her nothing has happened, but he feels they have. And arguably he is right, at least in that regard. He promises that if they keep going, he can get her to speak to her child. She scours back, you fucking better, and continues on with the plan. This of course includes another total backshave. Jeez, he must be one hairy dude. And he prepares another sacrifice of blood. He pours down more water upon her and lays out rows of more magic squares, mumbling in a foreign language. By continuing in the process, she is finally rewarded, finding flowers growing in the hall. She excitedly brings them to Solomon, asking if the wind could have blown them in, but he knows better, chuckling, this is it. It's just like he told her. Now she too can start to feel the presence of something bigger going on. And Solomon encourages her to keep going as it's at the seventh chamber that things really start popping off. She returns to praying and is given another positive sign. A single piece of something gold rains down from above. She takes it inquisitively on her finger and more starts to rain down upon them, signifying that her guardian angel is indeed listening. They again try to wrangle in the full depth of the evolving situation. Her knowing that things don't simply end with science as we're seeing. Solomon believes that science only describes the least of things. It's religion as well as magic that fill in those broader unknown mysterious strokes. They continue things and she looks hopefully to the ceiling but there's no magic gold confetti. She quickly loses her faith again and takes it out on him for a change growling that it's not working. She calls him nothing more than a vain idiot wanting to know why it isn't working as was promised. He slightly says that he doesn't know but could be because of her. As has been established all this really hinges on Sophia and her unwavering drive to complete the ritual. He again accuses her of not telling him everything. She weakly says it's the truth. He loses his temper once more, pinning her down to the table, and then says her real intent isn't to speak to her son, but in fact vengeance. Jack was actually murdered by a group of teen hooligans doing their own satanic ritual. She wants to know now that the truth is out, would he have proceeded from the beginning? And he tells her that he doesn't need her to be virtuous. You gotta just keep telling the truth, you know? Which she has faltered with a few times now. It then becomes how to progress the ritual forward, and Solomon longingly looks at his bottle in consideration. It appears that in his desperation, he does turn to drinking, sulking on the toilet with his baby bottle. He comes barreling in later to Sophia's room and rouses her to come do something important. She is concerned again and can tell that he's been drinking, but he rants that she has to do the ritual and be born anew. He sends her into the bathtub and then pours more water over her head. He, in order to strengthen her spirit, calls for Horus, Orpheus, Baal, and Christ, a wide encompassing range of gods outside of any one religion. He wails that he's going to dunk her three times and she tries to ask him to wait, but they have to do it now to make her soul anew. He dunks her, asking to make the soul clean and worthy. Another dunk to let her touch the void, the nothing. On the last plunge underwater, he doesn't let her up and holds her down with both hands. Looking like he's gone full nutball again, she fights back against him, thrashing in the water, but ultimately drowns. At that moment, there's a sound of a girl screaming elsewhere in the house. Probably actually Sophia's death cry. Once she ceases moving, he grabs his book and begins to chant. He then drags her lifeless body out of the tub and begins to resuscitate her via CPR. She's initially unresponsive, but finally coughs back to life. Another scene with multiple layers. I mean, he literally killed her 
man was drunk off his ass. You don't know what he's doing, you know? But as he stressed, truth is paramount to everything. As Sophia had lied again, he had no choice but to purify her soul in the most basic sense, by a baptism and resurrection. Now that she has died and been brought back to life, technically her soul is pure again. Man, this movie is a lot. Even though Sophia is pissed, Solomon assures her that this is what he had to do to fix the right. Now her intention is pure. She doesn't believe him and viciously attacks him, slamming him into the sink. She demands for him to make something happen, punching that she needs this. He groans in pain and lifts up his shirt, revealing that he's been stabbed all the way through by a knife in their little kerfuffle. Though the wound is looking severe, Solomon is confident this means the ritual is working. His injury is merely the price that he has to pay for hurting her. There's a kind of cosmic balance as she taps deeper into these powers, and Solomon must be punished for killing Sophia and obviously causing her harm at the same time. He says it's her guardian angel responsible for this turn of events. He's pretty nonplussed about the knife in his body and sends her to fetch some bandages and whiskey to clean the wound. He tells her to just pull the knife out, and she as usual does as asked, and the thing is really stuck in there. To distract him from the pain, he asks her to go on about losing her son. He was taken from daycare one day, but they never found the body or tied it to anyone being responsible. He coldly scoffs, you mothers and your children. Sophia acknowledges it's been three years and the case was closed and Jake was tragically forgotten in the end. Solomon knows all too well about people turning their backs on God, as she clearly has, and calls her over to sew him up. She's unconfident at first, but he assuages her fears and tells Sophia what he is going to ask for if this pays off. He wants invisibility, but not how she thinks. He wants to disappear and just live his life away from the rest of the world. Just some quiet before the howl of death. But urges again, this is not bonding of any kind. We are not pals. Yeah, you are, even though on the whole, the relationship is really weird here. Regardless, he promises things will start happening and she will soon get her vengeance. Later on the floor in bed, Sophia hears a baby crying. She goes out in the hall hearing a door handle rattling and finds one moving on its own. She flings it open seeing nothing. But when turning back, there's a glimpse of something else in the triangle room. She follows after it, and even though it's no longer there, there is something left behind. What looks like streaks of blood formed into another magic square symbol on the wall. This is a good point to reiterate what Solomon laid out. As they get deeper into this, the activity will become more powerful. We saw it start as that little thud or strange sounds, and now it has progressed to full-on voices and shadowy apparitions. The pair have another impactful conversation, Sophia wanting to know what will happen to her child's killer. Well, they'll die horribly and be damned for eternity. Solomon brings up that she can ask for all kinds of things besides vengeance, but she stays on her path of doing things her own way. She chuckles at them together, calling them what a pair, but she vehemently disagrees that they are similar whatsoever. There's a kind of back and forth bickering between them, because as with each of these conversations, Sophia is developing her own thoughts regarding the supernatural. She is confused of what she ultimately believes and has faith in, and now thanks to Solomon, she is being pushed beyond her limits of understanding. He doubles down, saying she's actually even worse than he is, and asks her to look where she is, and the depths of where she was willing to go for her son. I mean, he's not wrong, still a creepo though. She gets back to mastering her circles, and it's looking like his wound could prove deadly. She goes to flip on the kettle, and they suddenly lost power out of nowhere, another tick in their ever-maddening situation. After checking the breaker, she comes to Solomon looking much worse for wear over the sink, and he insists that he's fine. When informed about the power loss, he only suggests to continue ever onward. They've got candles, they've just gotta try and reach the end. The injury begins to take him over, his normally aggressive and assured demeanor replaced by confusion and uncertainty. It definitely looks like it's infected now. After all of her suffering and turmoil, now she might finally be getting what she's been after all this time. Her son's voice wafting out and calling 
calling for his mommy. It's really happening, or is it? He lures her to another room, and Everstrong Sophia knows that this is just a deception, whispering back that it isn't Jack. Also, as they get deeper into this, they bring more angels and demons to their location, and in this case, this is actually a demon impersonating her son. If she were to succumb to the illusion or trick and open the door, all would be lost. The darkness would win. Demon Jack goes for broke, pretending that mysterious dog got into the room and proceeds to attack him. And despite the implied horror, Sophia does not open the door, only apologizing to Jack through the wood. The real world brings her back, noticing Solomon sliding down the wall. She runs to his side, and he weakly tells her that she did good. That's not really her son. Poor us, he coos, and begins to rub her hair. Over time, they continue the work, but his health declines, pushing them to keep going. Conversely to her earlier trials, he collapses weakly, and she is the one who lifts him to his feet. Now it's a more confident Sophia that keeps the ritual spirit alive and is given more spooky evidence that it's working. While transcribing the notes, the sound of leather creaking squeaks out behind her. There's a weird glow of what looks like a cigarette there, as though someone is sitting in the chair. It starts to make a faint grumbling noise, and she grabs a candle to get a better look. She gets right up on the chair. There's no one there, but there is a lit cigarette in the ashtray. Again, they're continuously luring more spirits here, and now there is yet another. This chilling encounter is more than enough to send Sophia to her only weird comfort in this, climbing into bed with Solomon. In a final sweaty death throw, he proclaims himself a servant and warrior who shouted down his enemies. But his tough facade melts away into tears over his lost sister, first time he mentioned her, just like Sophia, he has lost somebody, and that must have been what initially led into his inquiry regarding the afterlife. He cries, oh god, at the memory, and in a huge shift from before, she wants to know, is he here? She now knows that at least some kind of spirituality is indeed real. He starts to speak, but goes silent, and she lovingly caresses his noggin. By the morning, he's gone, and she has to face the reality that she is truly on her own after being berated repeatedly for not knowing what she's doing. Well, that's a tough situation. Although Sophia has proven strong and resilient throughout every challenge presented. She's gonna figure this thing out. I got a good feeling. Though things look even more dire when there's more overlapping whispers, and she finds all of her meticulously written books have been scribbled out by dark forces. They really don't want her to be victorious, and she at her weakest stares at her own reflection, wondering what to do next. She considers if she could just simply leave the house despite Solomon's warning, and decides to make a break for it. It won't be so easy as the car doesn't start. Again, you can't really leave the barrier until the ritual is done. She finds this out the hard way, walking out at a long and winding road, until finally catching sight of a house. But as we might suspect, she winds up back at her house, and knows now there is no way of escaping her fate. As she closes the front door, there's already approaching footsteps and more creaking wood. She rounds a hall, seeing black handprints on the wall, and what looks like puke on the ground. Amongst the barf, she procures the photo of Jack, hearing more moaning. Solomon appears at the bottom of the stairs, but one-track mind Sophia decides to clean off the photo rather than help. And in fact, she shouldn't help, as this is another trick by the evil. She then waits impatiently at the top of the stairs, hearing more footsteps. Then a pair of ashen hands reach out and pull Solomon's body away. It's me, a voice echoes out. She stares intently at a candle in her room, and a wind whooshes in, blowing it out. In the total darkness, she grabs another and runs out into the hall. She strikes a match, revealing in the shadows a whole group of demonic figures there. She tries again, and they're gone. Well, that's good. They're gone for good, right? No. She hears the muffled screaming of what sounds like Solomon, and she retreats to her room, barricading the door. There's more disturbing noises, and Jack is back, asking her again to open up. He gets down to the core of what happened. You were supposed to pick me up at 3.30. Why weren't you there, Mommy? She genuinely and tearfully apologizes, telling him just how much she loves him. He innocently wants to know if she's asking him to forgive her, but she says no. It's not about 
about that, it's about his killers. The voice makes it clear they're not actually her son. He's just a demon occupying her son's voice to terrify her. In the morning, Sophia is given another positive sign, finding more flowers on the floor. A clear sign the right is still working. She looks over seeing the goblin toy, but then there's more supernatural hubbub. Out of the darkness, a white-haired woman holding Jack's hand as from her dream steps out with a black ash raining around her. She's lured once more with getting her kid back from the darkness it appears. Sophia spins around and another guy knocks her out. In a dark room, she's splayed out, the cavalcade of demons surrounding all around her. Right next to her is the dog, growling as usual, and now get that she must be at the deepest of that state between life and death. And the annoying ever-barking dog is actually the rotting one that we saw earlier. Everything that has died in the area has been contained by their spell and still lingers here now. Also, their ritual has drawn even more unruly demons. She comes to again, and the demons start grabbing onto her one by one, as though attempting to establish a connection. Maybe they're trying to get to our world. Another approaches with some massive bolt cutters that he uses to sever one of her fingers. She freaks out and manages to escape their grasp, yet they keep reaching out for her as she tries to make it upstairs, seeing only a brick wall at the top. They overpower her as she says sorry again, and it looks like the darkness will consume her for good, until a clearly holy white light overpowers the room. She walks right into it and comes to another glowing door, leading to the circle's room. She's completely overwhelmed at the sight of something, and we can see why, as there's a giant angel lady crouched in the room, in the middle circle, just like Solomon said, and there's a rainfall of the gold stuff that she saw earlier, in contrast to the older demon ladies as she reigned. Good and bad, you know, we had that established. And it looks like it really worked. Again, more circles make the angel more powerful. I mean, look at that thing. It speaks to her in a bassy tone that shakes the entire house, but we don't hear the actual word said. It's time to have her favor granted, and she takes a moment before speaking. Rather than vengeance, she asks for forgiveness. Remember how she kept saying earlier forgiveness was not her thing? Well, this whole experience has changed that. I mean, you are seeing a literal giant angel that might change some of your ideas of spirituality. We flash between the room and Sophia in a river along with a bundle, which must represent Jack's body. She officially lets go of him for good, pushing out his body and it drifts away until it sinks under the surface. This is the true heart of Sophia's journey. She must learn to grieve and let go of her son for good. The right now officially completed, she is able to leave without incident. While out on the road, she is overcome with emotion. It's clear this entire experience and really delving into the darkest parts of her soul has changed her fundamentally as a person. There's kind of two layers at play to her story. Going through the trials of the ritual and listening to everything Crazy Solomon said, which as we see did turn out to be true, the point was that it was only by completely dedicating herself mentally and physically to enduring the right that she was able to make it succeed. This also helped her to really dive into the idea of spirituality and make her own conclusions about it. The concept is as was mentioned earlier, prioritizing oneself at the top of everything, and then what we can learn and grow from by embracing this concept. Then the right also represents Sophia's own emotional and guilt-based blockup. She hasn't properly mourned her son's death, and that's what led her to all this. It's through the right that she is forced to confront all of these things head on, and after that moment of getting to tell Jack sorry, even if it was a demon impersonating him, now she was finally able to properly grieve and let him go, and has dealt with with her grief once and for all. With that, we have reached the conclusion of this ending explained for a dark song. But don't forget, before we go, you can send me requests for any movies or TV shows you'd like to see me explain by sending them my way on any of my social media accounts at Foundflix. What did you guys think of a dark song and its ending? Do you have a different interpretation of things? Let me know your thoughts down in the comments below. Make sure to like, subscribe, and follow. Thanks for watching Foundflix. See you next time.